Welcome to Dialogue Across Difference, an event series hosted by the Center for the Study of Politics and Governance at the University of Minnesota's Humphrey School of Public Affairs. Join us as Center Director Larry Jacobs and guests engage in conversations across the political and policy spectrum on issues of the day. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, uh, for the, uh, for being with us. We now have a second panel that's going to focus a little more directly on the issue of policing and mental health. Um, and we've got a tremendous panel here. Um, and I want to start with, uh, I'll just go down the line here, uh, Senator Drayman, Drayheim, excuse me, um, uh, Senator Ron Latz, uh, Judge Leifman, um, and uh, Dan Gillison, who is uh, the president of the National Association on Mental Health. Um, judge Leifman is a um, renowned judge in Florida who's been one of the leaders in the country on looking for ways to integrate mental health and policing and has been very successful in that. Uh, Chief Kelly McCarthy, who's from Mendota Heights. Uh, she's also uh, one of the leaders uh, here in Minnesota uh, from what's known as the Post Board, which sets uh, the uh, standards for policing uh, and has been a, a, a tremendous force there and elsewhere. Uh, Mindy Grilling, who has been um, an author, she was also a state legislator and quite influential on mental health and a number of other issues. And my uh, co-organizer, Norm Ornstein, who is a well-known Washington um, uh, uh, innovator and has also taken up mental health and policing as his calling. Um, Norm Ornstein. Thanks, Larry, uh, and thank you for all that you do and uh, for convening this session. Uh, we're going to have a broad-ranging conversation, I hope, uh, about how we can change the system in ways that Chief Alexander just uh, so eloquently talked about from his perspective. And here we have a group of people, uh, both those from this area, uh, legislators uh, who've been working in the trenches uh, on this uh, Steve Leifman, who has uh, remarkably transformed the way that uh, Miami-Dade County, one of the handful of largest counties in America and an extraordinarily diverse place, uh, has been able to transform the way the criminal justice system and policing deal with those with serious mental illness. Uh, Dan Gillison, the president of the National Alliance on Mental Illness, uh, which is the largest and most significant uh, uh, organization dealing with all of the issues of mental illness, including encounters with uh, the uh, criminal justice system. Uh, and uh, of course, uh, Chief McCarthy and, uh, and Mindy Grayling, a longtime legislator who has her own personal experiences I have had um, with uh, the broken mental health care uh, system. So let me, uh, let me just start by asking uh, the Minnesotans, what's working here? What's been done well? What's been done well at the local level that somehow has not translated to the statewide level? What do we have at the statewide level that simply hasn't filtered down to the local level? And then we can talk about what isn't working and what we can do to fix it. Uh, so let me uh, Senator start Darheim. at the end with Senator Graham. Thank you. Um, you know, I, I think the, the, what we've tried to tackle this last year in, in the Senate um, was really two things, and, and this will bleed into your question a little bit. One is access and professionals. And where you have access and where you have professionals, there's a lot of pockets where it's working. The problem is we don't have the capacity. And when you talk to your, in my area, the sheriffs, because I'm more rural, um, their their jails are um, three quarter full, even though they have would wish they could not wish. It's probably the wrong word. They normally would have more people in jail. They cannot 
fit more people in there because they do not have the personnel, cannot hire and retain the personnel to work in the jails. And a lot of people quit because of the people with mental health problems um, that endanger the staff. And there's nowhere to put them. So that, I guess that's that's what I look at where we, we find the professionals and um, there you have little pockets of working programs, but we don't have the capacity. Thank you. Uh, Senator Ron Latz. Uh, well, you know, we're, we're blessed in Minnesota to have a lot of well-trained mental health professionals, community activists uh, around these issues. Um, uh, community resources um, in a lot of communities, but there's, uh, and so we've got a minimal level of resources, but over the years, and especially since we deinstitutionalized uh, the mental health system in the 80s, uh, we let people out of the institutions, um, but we didn't have the community-based settings for them in place uh, to, uh, to, to deal with the population. Um, and we still don't have um, that. We have lots of community services available. We have lots of group homes available, but we have neighborhood resistance to placing group homes on, on their streets or their blocks or within three or four blocks of their houses. There are density requirements um, and distance requirements. So there, there are barriers. Um, there are, there's insufficient capacity because we haven't devoted the resources to building out the system um, that's necessary. Uh, so lots of good people. Um, we have a lot of knowledge. We need to devote the resources and it needs to be coordinated in a collaborative way so that uh, when it's built out, we aren't leaving these pockets. We aren't leaving these gaps and we're reaching all the people that, that need the help and, and can substantially reduce our jail, the, uh, the jail needs for people with mental health issues rather than really criminal conduct issues. Chief McCarthy. Thank you. And thank you so much for allowing me to be here today. I feel like before we go um, too much further, we need to acknowledge that there's two big forces that are intersecting here that we're not really talking about. And thank you for bringing up just um, systematic racism and that casts a shadow over everything we do. But so does our culture of gun violence. And from a law enforcement perspective, we have to look at how all of these intersect. And I think the question was, what are we doing that's, that's working? Um, and what we did in Dakota County is as law enforcement professionals, we got together and we realized it is infinitely better if um, to call a plumber than somebody who knows how to fix a leak when you're safe, when there's something wrong with your sink. Officers, and here's something we don't wanna talk about. We're really well-trained at de-escalation. We're really good at it. We're not consistent. Everybody in this room can think of a time that you saw police officers de-escalate a white person and maybe overreact when the person we were dealing with didn't look like us. We are very well trained at de-escalation. And so we realized that sometimes just our presence can escalate and we're not always the best people. To, and I know my police ego thank me for my service to say that we're not the best people to respond all the time, but we realized that. And so what we did in Dakota County is we came up with a consensus document and we asked, we told the County social services, we acknowledge you're better at this than we are. What can we do to support you? And between that and Travis's law, we were able to create essentially that diversion program at our dispatch center and so of the 800 and some mental health calls that have come in in the past nine months, we were able to reduce police response to those calls by 79%. That's hundreds of calls that historically police officers would have gone to by themselves or with a co-responder. And we're really pushing to that no responder model. And so um, that has been a, a great success and something that I'm very proud of uh, in Dakota County and for Dakota County um, Community Services. They've, they've done a great job. Mindy Rowan. I think what our mental health system in Minnesota does best is accommodate people who are 
voluntary, people who know they have a mental illness and they seek help, then um, the world is open to you. So that is um, the flip side of Matthew Ornstein, who had anosognosia, which my son has had as well. People who don't think they're sick, don't want to accept care. Um, that's something we can talk about when we're not on the question of what, what works well. And then we have um, in Minnesota, four very fine working mental health courts in the three biggest counties, and then one that's a consortium on the Iron Range. So for people who live there and for people where the court hasn't reached capacity, so they can't take everybody, which happened to my son, where then he ended up in felony court instead, um, those are things that are working well. Let me, uh, we're going to come back to what's not working uh, a little bit more. And obviously, one of the things that we know is you can have component parts that work well. But if you don't integrate them into a broader system of care, it's not going to do much for you. I've heard story after story from around the country where you have police who respond in exactly the right way to a mental health crisis. Know that they have somebody who needs to get help and there's no bed. There's no place to go. Or you go to the emergency room where you're going to have to sit as a police officer for hours off your job to take care of it. And the only other option is jail. So we need to talk more about comprehensive care and treatment. And with that, let me ask Judge Steve Leifman, who's had 22 years of trying to pull together all of these elements, what you were able to do and how you were able to do it and how, knowing that there are many things that do work well in this state and at the local level, uh, there can be lessons drawn. Sure. And thank you so much uh, for being, uh, for allowing me to be here. I'm half Minnesotan, so I feel like I'm home. My dad was born here and grew up here, so it's a real pleasure. Um, now, I think the first thing, it's good to be judge. And when we invite people to meetings, they come even if they don't want to be here or be there. And, and that's how we started with a mapping in my own community where, you know, I invited all the traditional and non-traditional stakeholders in our community. And we sat down for a two-day summit and we literally mapped out the intersection between the criminal justice system and the, and the, just, and the civil justice system and the community mental health system. And what we found is that we were frankly, embarrassingly dysfunctional. Um, and, and we were really good about not pointing fingers. This isn't one person or party or institution's fault and not one person or party or institution is going to fix it. It truly requires a collaboration and a certain level of trust and respect among the stakeholders. And um, we had very little resources in Florida. We still do. We do not have expanded Medicaid. We're 49th or 50th per capita in funding. And so we were really forced to have to work with each other to be able to make some structural changes. And the summit wasn't put together to, um, you know, create a mental health court. That's kind of a small minor thing that really doesn't fix the whole thing. We really wanted to see how do we make a structural change to be able to make a real dent in the problem. And, you know, what we realized after we finished this mapping is that us so-called healthy same people were the sick people that had designed a system to fail perfectly and it failed perfectly and that we were part of the problem and everything from the way we handled competency restoration to the way law enforcement uh, intersected with individuals with these issues to the way the courts uh, identified and treated people with these illnesses. And so we decided we needed a two-part approach. And if I had to do it again, I would do a three-part approach. But the two parts that we took on were a pre-arrest diversion system and a post-arrest diversion system. And we've become more sophisticated and are trying to move more towards what Chief McCarthy's talking about, not even having a law enforcement response when you don't, because we didn't have data 22 years ago, but the data now shows us that police really only are needed in about 7% of mental health calls. And it was fascinating to hear um, the new chief, you know, they have a recruiting problem. Well, why are you using your police to handle so many mental health calls? You could probably do with less officers if you didn't have to do that. In Florida, 
um, more than half of the civil commitments are done by law enforcement. In fact, in Florida, and this is nationally, I'm sure, um, our police handle more uh, mental health calls than burglary, assaults, and auto thefts combined. And those are a lot of cases. It's 106,000 cases a year. And so we're not using our law enforcement resources, stressing them out more, stretching them out more as well. And so we've been able to really try to change how we've approached that. And it's worked. Um, We keep a lot of data. And out of, um, uh, we looked at the two largest agencies. We now have all 36 departments trained. Um, And out of 105,000 mental health calls over a 10-year period, the last 10 years, our two largest departments only made 198 arrests. And so the number of arrests in Miami went down from about 118,000 a year to 53,000 before COVID. And um, our jail audit went from about 7,400 to 4,400. And we closed the jail. I mean, you want to get your county to love you? Save them money. And, and, you know, a lot of what you talk about is not cost savings. It's cost shifting, which is important. But when you actually close a jail, it became a cost savings. And for us, it was 12 million a year. It's 96 million in real savings. And to my county's credit, they have reinvested a lot of those dollars back into building a better mental health system, which they're not responsible for my state is, but they're still spending so much money in the jail for this population. They've realized that by doing smarter, better things, it'll save them money in the long term. So we also set up a post-arrest diversion system. So now that if you do get arrested in Miami-Dade on a misdemeanor with a serious mental illness, you're basically out of jail within three days. You're transferred to a, a, the civil system, and um, we give you an opportunity to come into our program. And if you agree to go, we do not rebook you. We take you right to court. And we haven't talked about peers enough because that's a really great way to save a lot of money and also to get much better outcomes. Uh, we have eight of our 24 member staff are people with lived experiences. Many of them graduated from our program and they help this population not only navigate the system, but also reestablish relationships. People don't appreciate, but by the time you get arrested with a serious mental illness, you have clinical depression on top of your mental illness. The system is just beating the crap out of you. And it's not that you don't want to take medication. You don't care if you breathe. And, and so the peers are really great about helping break down those barriers to help people want to get better. And so we now have a diversion system post-arrest for both misdemeanors and felonies, and it works. Our recidivism came down from about 72% to 20%, um, which got our state attorney's attention and bought in. And, um, you know, if you really want to improve public safety, get people treatment. It's not rocket science. And then help them navigate a very complex system. Great. Dan Gillison? Well, first of all, thank you for this convening and um, just appreciate the opportunity to be here on behalf of NAMI, <clears throat> the National Alliance on Mental Illness. And uh, to, uh, um, uh, to you, Larry, and to you, Norm, thank you for doing this. And uh, 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 Mindy and, and, and um, uh, Sue and, and uh, Mindy was on the board of, of NAMI, and it's about leadership. It's about leadership, tone, and execution. And I think that there are some things that we have to look at in terms of what we're doing in terms of that execution from the standpoint of we know a person and, and, and chief, thank you very much for what you're doing in terms of your leadership, because you, you recognize that a person that's having a mental health crisis deserves a mental health response, not a law enforcement response. Um, uh, a judge, what you just t- talked about in terms of peers. Um, going down to see the Miami model years ago, I met one of those peer specialists, Justin Volpe. And if you've seen the, uh, the documentary definition of insanity, you'll see Justin uh, in his role. Um, and um, he is so well received because he's got lived experience. And um, to all of you all that are here uh, in the uh, in, in, in the room with us and also on in the virtual room, uh, thank you for what you do in terms of addressing this. NAMI is an organization that was started by mothers 43 years ago whose sons were diagnosed and assessed with uh, schizophrenia. And from 43 years to now, uh, we are uh, the largest grassroots organization doing work in communities across the country, in the communities where we understand the DNA and we're a part of it. Um, What we all are on is this treadmill and we're all going so fast that sometimes you, you know, sometimes you got to you got to slow down to go fast. 
And what I mean by that is you got to look at, well, what is it that you're, you know, as you talked about the, the counties and the rural counties and, and, uh, and then we go to the, to the cities and the states. The, the net net is what are you doing well that you can build on? Because you don't want to, as you're trying to bring in new opportunities and new solutions in the front door, you don't want to throw those things that, that are going well. You want to build on them. So how do you do that? Uh, one of the things we're looking at is something uh, that you're, you, you have here, your mobile crisis response across over, uh, I think, in every county that you have here. They're all not funded, but they're up and running. Uh, we have 988. Uh, which is the new uh, national uh, suicide prevention and mental health crisis number. Uh, and 988 has been in place since July 16th. So it's it's almost a month now. But the point in fact is, is that that is where we're talking about reimagining crisis response and building a continuum of care. Uh, someone who who, who is uh, answering the call, uh, someone who can be dispatched if, if the person cannot, if the situation cannot be uh, de-escalated, if you will, and then a place to take them, a place that 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 is very receptive, um, and 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 that is something that we're looking at in terms of uh, our body of work and making sure that we're doing this in the in the best way. Um, the other thing that we've done is a is a series uh, that we called "Help Not Handcuffs." A person with a mental illness deserves help, not handcuffs. And we did a series of sessions uh, where we talked about and we brought experts together to do this. And um, um, on behalf of the Matthew Harris Ornstein Foundation, they kicked it off for us um, in that very first panel. Uh, that was our largest one. We had over 4,200 people register for that session. The next one was on legislation and community needs. And the last one was on community models because we wanted to move from leadership to tone to the community models execution. If someone's there in one of those webinars and they want to understand, how do I do that for my community? We wanted to end that series with, here are models that are working. Here are some best practices. No one wants to be a guinea pig. A lot of people will, will go with a pilot, but they need proof sources. So we want to be a part of the solution. And we're very happy to be here. And we know it's about convenings. And we know it's about conversations. And we know it's about collaboration. So we appreciate being a part of this. Norm Ornstein, thank you. Uh, Norm Ornstein, I want to ask you, you've worked in so many different policy areas. Um, this one strikes me as one of the most daunting, and you've dealt with a lot of daunting ones. Uh, you've got the convergence of three, I'll use the word disasters. You've got a mental health system that has tremendous need on it, but is overwhelmed. You've got a criminal justice system that um, you know, has, has lost a lot of credibility, a lot of questions about it issues around racism and fairness, um, and, and also it's, it's sheer operation. And then you've got a police force, which, as uh, Dr. Alexander said a moment ago, has only got up to go because uh, in Minnesota, it's, it's taken such a hit in terms of its reputation. What is the path out of the convergence, this really nightmare convergence? It's uh, daunting and frustrating. Um, you know, one of the things that's frustrating to me is there isn't a family in America, I would say, that hasn't been touched in some way by brain diseases and mental illness. Uh, and yet we have other diseases that have enormously powerful lobbies with many fewer people who have been touched that managed to succeed in getting funding and finding ways to do better research and to implement change. And we don't have that. NAMI's done its best, but the fact is stigma still is significant. When I first went public with what happened with our son, with a piece in the New York Times, I got flooded with calls. I still do. My wife does. And almost all of them are. I've never told anybody this, but. Mm -hmm. And we're starting to overcome it, but that's certainly a part of the problem. We know that also is something we've discussed over and over again in the mental health system. When we deinstitutionalize, the promise that we would replace these institutions with community health centers with beds never happened. We've lost 90% plus of the beds that we had. It was something uh, we were talking about earlier when uh, Chief McCarthy was talking. If you do it the right way, but there's no place to take somebody, then you're going to end up back in a jail. So we, we know that we've got to create a different comprehensive system. One of the things we fought for over and over again is this 
terrible rule in the federal system uh, that's called the IMD exclusion in Medicaid mm -hmm. that limits community health centers to 16 beds and getting Medicaid funding for dealing with mental illness. And it's going to cost money, but the savings that come, what Steve Leifman has uncovered for people is if you do this the right way, you save huge amounts of money. You can save lives and save money at the same time. But it's also convincing politicians to put an initial seed resource into a system for a benefit that's going to come a little bit later. The same is true with uh, training police. Now, I'm not going to tell you that crisis intervention team policing is itself a panacea. We know there are plenty of people who are trained, including in Minnesota, and we've had tragedies still occur, including from officers who've been trained in that de-escalation. But just as Chief McCarthy said, often they view it very differently through the lens of a person of color who's having a problem. And that's built into our system, I think, this sense of fear and, of course, if you're trained to respond with force, then you're going to get those tragedies. So it's a top to bottom kind of approach. And I would just mention one other thing, something that Steve's talked about a lot and that we also know. We're so siloed. We're siloed in terms of mental health with uh, the hospital system and the way it deals with it, with the criminal justice system, with the prisons, with policing. But we're also siloed because something that's working well in one county, like Dakota County, doesn't get spread anywhere else. Dan Gillison worked uh, with Steve and with others on a project for years to try and get counties to follow best practices. And there were a lot of resources put into that. And the fact is most counties still don't respond well. It's partly culture. They don't want to be told other things. They don't want to change what they've been doing. This as you know, Larry, you and I who've worked in the political arena for so long, Changing anything is difficult, our system that's so decentralized. But what we have, I think, an opportunity here in Minnesota to do, because this is a state in the front lines, in the national spotlight for its failures, but it's a state with enormous resources. And now this is an opportunity. And I'm hoping that this is a kickoff for a different way of doing things where we can pull together state leaders, including great state senators and representatives that we know understand these problems, knowing that there is greater, greater in rural areas as they are in the urban areas. In the rural areas, we have no help and none of the resources. You don't have psychiatrists you can go to. You don't have the beds or any of those things that maybe we can find a model that actually can be repeated elsewhere. And this is the time. Senator Traham, I want to ask you about um, policing in the political world. And you know, we'll just be real about this. There are few issues as polarizing as policing. You, you throw policing into the state capitol here in Minnesota or elsewhere, and people can easily run to corners, and there are different activists who are very skilled at, at polarizing. Um, do you think the, the focus of mental health um, is a way in which we can kind of take a deep breath and deal with a core driver of some of the, the uh, problems uh, with policing or criminal justice system, um, does it strike you that that building an agenda around mental health is something that we can work on together across party lines? You know, I, I think we did that in the Senate this last year. Um, you know, we put together a package of uh, very bipartisan bills that uh, try to address some of the issues with the limited budget that we had. Um, you know, we've done bonding in the past too for facilities, um, but they're all band-aids. I'm really proud of the mental health bill that we got passed this year and, and what we were able to do, but it's a drop in the bucket. And um, I, in my opinion, we need to start in, in school. You know, we, we really need to teach our youth um, about policing. Uh, but we also need to teach our youth about coping skills and being open and talking to people when when they're at crisis. And, you know, for me, it was sports. I was very active when I needed to have a release, if you will. Yeah, I went out and ran or biked or played basketball or whatever it was. Um, but the, that conversation about policing 
needs to start very young. And, and I know the DARE program um, is really popular in my area, but I think we have different perceptions depending on where you live. So in most of my new district of seven counties, um, it's all sheriffs, you, you know, for the most part. And if you have a police force, it's probably three people, um, which is a lot different than what uh, Senator Latz has in his district. Um, so we, we have to remember that there isn't a one size fits all. Um, but, I, but I think we have to have that conversation in an adult fashion. Um, and I think that's what's missing in politics is that it's hard not everybody is as level-headed as uh, Senator Latz here. And we don't, we're on the opposite end of the spectrum, but we can have a conversation. And, and that's what we should ask of all of our elected officials is to have that adult conversation and remember what's the goal. And here it is to help people. Um, all I hear in district, sheriffs are overwhelmed with mental health problems. The hospitals are overwhelmed with patients and they have nowhere to put them. Both of them have nowhere to go. And, and that's why we worked so hard this year to get something done. Was it enough? No. Um, I'm hoping that we can dedicate a whole committee to mental health moving forward in the Senate because we haven't done that as the six years I've been in. Um, and, and really try to have a game plan. Do we need a regional center for congressional seat or congressional district? Because um, you, uh, Olmsted County, you know, they were able to get some body money and, and put up a facility. Um, you know, I, I think they're definitely headed in the right direction, but that's nice for Southwest Minnesota, but what about Northeast Minnesota or wherever it is? So um, it's just keeping the conversation going. And um, in, in my area, the policing isn't as big a deal. Thank you very much, mm -hmm. uh, Senator Letts. Um, well, it, it, it certainly is a, an issue across the state. Um, and I agree with Senator Drahan that it's important to get to the kids early. Um, part of that's a function of resources. We have, I think now we are 50th out of 50 states in the ratio of counselors in the schools to students. We have so few counselors, they can't begin to provide the, the services and resources, even identifying students that are having mental health issues, wherever they're coming from, you know, issues at home, food insecurity, uh, trouble with classmates, peer conflict, whatever it is. We don't have enough counselors in the schools to be able to even begin to, to crack that problem. Uh, you know, gun violence was brought up um, and we've got, uh, you know, the, the gun violence by suicide in rural Minnesota is the greatest cause of uh, death by firearm uh, in greater Minnesota. It's, in the metro area, it's a little bit different, but it's a suicide, which is a function of depression sure. and other mental health <laughs> issues and is, is a terrible problem in greater Minnesota. That in part, again, comes back to resources. Um, when you've got uh, the, the police bring someone to the hospital and the hospital admits them into the emergency room. And then the hospital doesn't have any beds out of the emergency room. And they've got no place to discharge them to in the community. And so we get stories now people are staying in emergency rooms for 30 days or longer because there's nowhere else to put them. The jails don't even have the capacity to put them in the jails uh, in many cases. Uh, and I think part of the issue is as, as we come together as communities, um, we have institutional inertia. We have bureaucratic inertia. People want to protect their budgets. They want to protect their jobs. They want to protect, you know, what they're doing. They believe in their mission. Uh, even sometimes when the mission becomes a little bit outdated or needs some substantial tinkering. Um, but in the end, and this goes especially for the folks that tend to be targeted with complaints or criticisms, everyone has to be willing to be not so defensive and to view themselves as part of the solution to the problem and to be proactive about it. And I'm thinking not only in terms of the mental health professionals and the institutions and so on, but certainly within law enforcement, target of a ton of criticism. Law enforcement is also critical 
as a part of the solution to this, this issue. And they have to be willing to be less defensive, maybe be a little more empathetic, see the world from not only their own perspective, but other perspectives and buy into being a part of the solution. When we're all at the table trying to do it that way, uh, and that includes the legislature, we have to be willing to, to buy in and not to polarize and politicize and retreat into our corners and take advantage of, uh, of issues that it's easy to throw rhetorical bombs or political bombs across the aisle, especially in an election year, um, and not come together and find the solutions and compromise to make progress. We all have to buy in to make solving this problem and not just uh, perpetuating. Um, I've got a bunch of questions here from our audience here and the audience online. Uh, so let me get to uh, as many as we can. Um, Chief McCarthy, you mentioned Dakota County, that mental health uh, professionals were uh, being given uh, calls that were, that were coming in uh, that would normally go to the police department. Uh, is that being done elsewhere in Minnesota? Um, yes. Thank you for the question. And as much as I hate to say anything nice about elected officials and especially statewide elected officials, <laughs> um, the, the, the legislature really should take a, a bit of a victory lap on that because what we're doing in Dakota County is a direct result of you all changing the use of force statute and scaring some members of law enforcement into changing. And then also um, community activists should really be proud of themselves with the passage of Travis's law. And so that was passed, and you gentlemen probably remember better than I do, but it, it now requires PSAPs or dispatch centers to divert calls to mobile crisis units if the mobile crisis units are able. And that's always that, that if is where the pinch point usually is. Thank you. Um, Dan Gillison, a uh, question here. How do we recruit and encourage people to become mental health professionals? It's a, it's a it's an incredible question. It's a very good question. If you think about um, uh, all of us as aunts, uncles, mothers, dads, and as we raise young people, think about what our young people are exposed to from the standpoint of the medical professions. We take them to an ear, nose, and throat specialist. We take them to a pediatrician. Uh, if they're a, 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 uh, uh, an athlete and get injured, we take them to an orthopedic surgeon. Um, we take them to the dentist. So they're exposed to all of these fields. So we have to, you know, we have to go upstream and we have to get uh, people into the professions and exposed to the professions early. Um, and that is uh, through uh, um, the American Psychiatric Association, American uh, uh, um, Psychological Association, as well as the National Association of uh, Social Workers, and they do have uh, uh, early programs to bring people into the uh, to the to the pipeline, if you will, get young people exposed to it. I think we should also look at our associate degree programs at our, our community colleges to get people in. The community colleges is a, a very good place for us to bring young people into the profession. Uh, and then we also have to create mentorship programs where, you know, we do all these commercials on TV. We need to find ways to uh, advertise and market this profession as a very noble and, and caring profession so that we can have other people come into the profession. Yeah. Let me just add, no add to that. This is a, a problem generally, and we're going to have a bigger problem in the healthcare system post-COVID as we're seeing so many people leave after all the stresses that they face, nurses especially. But it's a particular problem for serious mental illness. Most psychiatrists don't want to treat people with serious mental illness. They want somebody who comes in at 10 o'clock precisely, stays for 45 minutes complaining about a spouse or kids or a job, leaves, and then pays. And my son could no more have made it to an appointment at 10 o'clock. And those who are willing often know nothing about the legal system or how to navigate through this process. We need to change the incentives as well to bring people in and to treat, to train psychiatric nurses and uh, psychiatrists in dealing with serious mental illness and get it paid for as well. So it's a big challenge for the society. And with COVID, we're going to have a huge increase in people who have uh, mental illness crises, including a substantial increase in schizophrenia, as well as depression and all these other things. This problem is going to get worse before it gets better, and we better mobilize now. Larry, can I just add one yes, thing real quick to that? Um, we, in our bill this year, we tried to address some of that with obviously some grants, but also on the supervision part of uh, getting licensed. We wanted to reimburse the people that 
are supervising the new people coming into the field so we can encourage them to get through and get into the field because a lot of people start but don't finish. So we are trying to identify those things and, and trying to fund it at a minimal level, um, but at least we're headed down that path. We've got a question here about 988. This is a new phone number for folks who are uh, suffering uh, severe mental illness and uh, suicidal ideations. Um, the question is uh, about the wariness and distrust of this system and the fear that it's still going to funnel people into the police uh, system, into the court system. Question, what criteria is going to be used for determining if and when to hand a case over to law enforcement? And how is that done? Chief McCarthy, any idea on that? Uh, that's a great question. And um, I don't know is the short answer. We know that what we're trying to do is, and what we've agreed on as chiefs in Dakota County is that police should respond only when there is a violation of the law or a suspected violation of the law, a weapon is involved, um, or somebody is threatening harm. And that if those criteria aren't met, we do not want to go. I would hope that wherever in the universe this 998 goes, when it gets to our dispatch center, it will, um, we will follow those criteria as well. Norm Ornstein, I wouldn't describe you as an overly optimistic person by, by I don't know, maybe not by nature, but by training, <laughs> by training and experience. Um, how optimistic are you about 988, at least I'm, in the I'm, short term? I'm very concerned. I think we've gotten out ahead of our skis on this. We need to have, first of all, train professionals who will answer these calls. And we don't have the trained professionals. A lot of them are gonna be diverted back to 911. One of the great things that Judge Leifman has done in Miami is he's trained the 911 operators to know when there's a particular mental health crisis, which teams of people to send out. And I think we've raised expectations about what 988 can do before we're ready to make it work. And I really fear that we're gonna have some bad things that will happen that will scare people off uh, even more. 988 is so critical to the seriously mental ill and many in the, the NAMI community. So we're very uh, um, uh, interested in seeing it uh, um, um, operationalized in its best way. And we know that there are some things that need to, to work in terms of upfront. It is that um, certified uh, 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 counselor that is taking the call that's been trained. Um, and the only time that they are supposed to engage law enforcement, if there's a threat of harm. So there's a, a, a significant amount of training that they're going through uh, before they can even take the calls. And then part of that is for them to uh, know how to, to uh, um, go through a filtering process to know whether there's a threat of harm. And then law enforcement is involved or law enforcement will not be involved. The biggest thing is the workforce. Is, is that we need more and that we don't have the workforce. So that's part of uh, the, the, the challenge with 988 right now. Thank you, Dan Gilson. Uh, Mindy. Uh, One thing I'm gonna be looking for with 988 that I'm hoping is better than 911 is that one of the early questions is not if it's a family member like me calling, is your family member voluntary? Because that kind of stifles things when you call 911. If the person is not voluntary, then you have to meet that standard um, that Chief McCarthy just talked about, or they say there's nothing they could do. They could come out and assess, but then if they don't meet that criteria, they would have to leave again, which isn't very helpful because then the person is even more upset and the family is left with them. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, so I'm going to be interested in watching to see if 988 is better than 911. In other words, they don't have that standard. They could send out a mental health professional who could um, be more helpful and try really hard to get the person engaged and not just say they don't meet criteria. There's nothing we can do. Uh, Norm Ornstein, we've got a question here uh, from um, one of our online uh, friends who is impressed by the work that Judge Leifman has done um, in Miami-Dade and is wondering, what are the next steps to bring a program like that to Minnesota? Um, would you recommend that a judge, as we saw with Miami-Dade and Judge Leifman, 
be a leader of that? And how do you cut across the various silos in the mental health system and criminal justice? Before we're done, I also want Judge Lifen to talk about what he's doing next. Um, he's building a remarkable facility that will be, I think, a model for the rest of the country. You do need a champion. Um, this isn't going to work unless you have a tireless champion willing to pull the stakeholders together and keep their feet to the fire. Uh, that's what uh, Judge Leifman has done. We need to find that champion and or set of champions in Minnesota. I think it's helpful if they come from the judiciary, but they don't only have to come from the judiciary. I was so heartened by Chief Alexander, who I think has his finger on a number of issues and problems and is obviously candid about it. You see great police uh, 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 policing done by people like Chief McCarthy. We had a police chief uh, from St. Cloud, who's just a remarkable figure as well. Um, and we just have to do this tirelessly. And I, I think to me, what is most hopeful now is the desire has to be here in this state. You know, I, I'll tell you, as a Minnesotan, uh, you know, uh, around the country, I would proselytize about my home state, Minnesota nice, this incredible culture and all of that. George Floyd was like taking the rock off and seeing the dirty stuff underneath. And to know that, which we knew, I knew from our family, my family, Ron's family, grew up in North Minneapolis. All those problems were there for many, many decades you put them behind a cloak of silence in a sense, and now they're there and we see them. We're on the front lines in this state. And that uh, a champion I think is gonna find because of so many good people in this state, the desire to make it better. And if we don't, then we're gonna face some really severe consequences. We're already seeing some of it in this city, especially the crime, the fear of crime, the, the antagonistic relationships that have only grown. And that's what Steve was able to do was to take antagonistic relationships and turn them into partnerships. Will we find those champions? Steve Leifman, we're, we're I'm sorry. As you pass it to Steve, yeah. I just want to mention something. And this is more of a question. And I think it's important as in, in terms of my stewardship that I do it. I'm going to ask everyone a, a really a question and not, not to be answered. But when you hear these words, underrepresented, minimized, discounted, misunderstood, pushed aside, marginalized, invisible. When I first captured that, I was talking about those with mental illness, but I'd like to share this with you as Norm mentioned George Floyd and, and that I'll, I'll read the words again and then I'll pass it off to Steve. Underrepresented, minimized, discounted, misunderstood, pushed aside, marginalized, invisible. This that, that we're talking about in terms of those words is about building trust. And I just wanted to leave that with you from the standpoint of what's critically important is building trust and for people not to feel marginalized or invisible or misunderstood or discounted uh, uh, or underrepresented. Thank you. Steve. Judge Leifman, the attorney general of Minnesota is here. He's ready for the next panel. So you have two minutes to close out. I will never get in the way of the attorney general. <laughs> um, thank you again. Um, it is very scalable. Uh, just last week, the Association of All the State Chief Justices met in Chicago, and most of their annual meeting was spent on mental health, and they passed a resolution endorsing this initiative and recognizing that every court in America needs to change. And they're putting an implementation plan together for the next four years on how to make it happen. Um, so it is doable. But we have to remember that trauma is a significant, plays a significant role in this issue, and you mentioned doing something earlier, and I said at the beginning, if I had to do this again, um, there was three things that we should have done, not two. And one of them is early childhood trauma. 92% of all the women in jails and prisons in the United States with serious mental illnesses um, have horrific histories of trauma, mostly sexual abuse when they were children. 75% of men who are in jail and prisons in the United States with serious mental illnesses also have horrific histories of trauma, sometimes sexual abuse, more likely to be victims of domestic violence or witnesses to really horrible violence, just like a soldier would see in combat. Uh, uh, trauma is physiological. It's not emotional. Uh, it creates uh, significant changes in brain activity, and there's treatment for it. We need to make sure that we identify it early and we help people get treated. 
Um, lastly, um, what you'll find is after you do all these great things, you're still going to be left with 20 to 30 percent of the population that are just too ill um, for this capacity that all of us have in every one of our communities. It's not a Minnesota problem. It's a national problem. And we talk a lot about crisis care. But then what happens to the individual after they leave crisis care? Just like diabetes or heart disease, it has to be maintained and treated. And so we're now building the first of its kind mental health diversion facility. It is a one-stop shop facility, fortuitously or ironically, it is the old competency restoration facility in Miami. It's a 181,000 square foot facility, seven stories. And what it's gonna do is take all the essential elements of recovery and put them in one place, including primary care, dental care, eye care, podiatry care, um, it'll have a crisis stabilization unit, a short-term residential facility, a receiving facility. It'll have a day activity program run by people with mental illnesses to teach self-sufficiency, a culinary supportive employment program to help people get jobs when they leave us. It has a courtroom in the building so that we can manage both criminal and civil cases, and it has 200 beds of housing. And so the idea is instead of just drop kicking people to the street, once we've adjudicated their case, we can gently reintegrate them back in recovery with all the supports that they need to maintain it. And that you can do regionally in a state like Minnesota. You don't need one in every large, you know, every community, you know, and, and same for us in Florida. We need to regionalize it in our big role areas as well. And so it will help all of us develop capacity and you put in, you know, um, you know, uh, uh, telepsych so that rural areas, they don't have to drive three hours to get treatment, but they can go to the local church, maybe where there's a TV screen and they could see a psychiatrist. So there's things we can do. I strongly recommend that you develop these um, uh, summits where you do these mappings in each community. So it works for what's in that community, not what's good for Minneapolis may not be good for your area and, and same in my state. And, and if you start to do that, you get this buy-in, you don't point fingers, as I said earlier, and you, you give everyone else the credit for doing it. And thank that's you very much. That's thank a great you. way to send us off. I want to thank this phenomenal panel, uh, Senator Dram, Draheim, uh, Senator Ron Latz, uh, Judge Leifman, who flew in from Florida, uh, Dan Gillison, who flew in from D.C., Washington, D.C., uh, uh, Chief McCarthy, uh, Mindy Grilling. Thank you very much. It's an amazing time.